G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. In this episode, we'll get some learning into us. First, we'll speak to Rowan Kunz, co-founder of MyEdApp, an educational startup that seems to be making all the right moves. Then we'll talk to attorney Kurt Falkenstein, who'll teach us about how a startup needs to organize itself legally in order to keep itself out of trouble down the track. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Create Your Own Radio Station app, Omni Radio, and eCal, the right-time communications platform. Must have been about a year ago that I got an email from two young gentlemen who were trying to do an educational startup. Now, educational startups are weird beasts because they live in this very interesting realm between the fact that, A, everyone needs the product, and B, that product is normally delivered by a state or by some sort of public-private partnership or whatever it is. And so education, which everyone gets... Involves a lot of technology, always has ever since books were invented, but connecting the two has always been a bit of a minefield. And these young gentlemen, we went to coffee and we had a really good discussion about what they were doing as a platform to build and deliver technology. And I'm lucky enough to have watched over the last year as their startup has matured. And I am with one of the founders, Rowan Kunz. Rowan, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. So you have a startup that's called MyEd App. That's correct. Yes. All right. And I think when I first talked to you, it was called MyEd. That's right. It was. So what are you doing in education? There's so much that is slow, weird, wrong, needs to be fixed in education. Everyone who participates in the system of public education knows it. What are you doing to fix that? It's a big question. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> yep, I will. Look, I think fundamentally what we're trying to do is help teachers remove a one-size-fits-all approach in their classroom. So teachers will spend a lot of time preparing resources. They'll go in, they'll create a great lesson. Hmm. And then what they deliver will reach a couple of kids because it's the right point for them. And right. for everyone else, they'll be twiddling their thumbs because it's either been too hard or too easy, right. fundamentally. So, a big part of what we've been working to understand is how can we make it easy, effectively and essentially, for teachers to be able to start to better personalize the learning for their students in their classroom, but critically, and this has been the real challenge, in a way that fits with their workflow and is easy to do. Because this is a big thing, talking to teachers a lot, Piling more technology onto a teacher is often a really bad idea because teachers are fundamentally time poor because, Definitely. you know, we don't think of it if we're not teachers, but teachers spend a lot of time in classroom and then they spend just as much time often on a daily basis preparing or grading or meeting with students and tutoring and all the other things that they do. So they're fundamentally time poor. Mm -hmm. And if you throw them a new software package or a new device mm -hmm. and say, here, learn this, it, they, it, it's not going to so much freak them out as it is going to make them angry. Yeah, that's right. I mean, too often technology for, for teachers, because their time pool falls into the too hard basket. Right. You know, it's it's something that is talked about. It sounds great. It sounds amazing. But then when it comes to implementation, exactly right. And when they're doing two to three hours on top of a teaching day, doing all those tasks, uh, you know, they just don't have the, the bandwidth, right. so to speak, to invest in exploring a tool right. that may or may not 
help meet their and needs. save their times. Yeah, exactly right. And that's inherently, I think, the, I think the big challenge for any um, startup or company working in the education sector. Okay, so what we've, we framed the problem. So yeah. what was your solution to that problem? Because <laughs> that's the first point that, you know, before you even sell in, you have to convince people that this is something that they want, right? So yeah, how did you do definitely. that? Definitely. <laughs> I think one of the things that worked really well for us is that we very much took the approach of, of, of saying, hey, let's live in schools for a 12 to 18 month period. So we put our team in some couple of schools in Sydney, couple of schools in Melbourne, you know, across primary, high school, you know, the different school sectors. Right. Um, and basically worked very closely with teachers to understand their workflow. Ah. So you, rather than coming in and saying, hi, we have the solution, you actually watched what they did and then in a user-centered perspective. 100% right. And that was absolutely critical and for us. What brought you to that wisdom? I think we were forced to get to that point because, one, none of us were teachers. So, I've worked right. in education for a long time, but right. not um, not as a teacher in a classroom. Okay. So, it meant that, you know, we weren't operating with a sense of, you know, we think we know what needs to be the solution. Right. We came very much with this blank slate of we're passionate about education. I'd worked enough in education and worked with enough teachers to see the challenges that they were having, um, but didn't necessarily at that point have a clear idea of what that solution may exactly look like. Okay, so you're in the classroom. What are you learning while you're in the classroom? In terms of the teacher's workflow and, and their experience, yeah. I think the the big thing, which was a... A huge slap in the face mm-hmm. for, for us and myself personally was just the degree of technology that was there and the challenges that it presented for teachers. So, you mean like the electronic whiteboards and the uh, projectors and uh, what do you, what do you mean? What do I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you've got teachers and students for that matter using, you know, very old devices typically. Right. Um, that are on Internet Explorer 6. Uh, that are just a nightmare to use. For, right. for lack of a better way to describe it, the device right. and the Wi-Fi connectivity was so poor right. that for us that was a big wake-up call. It was like, wow, like we've got to understand that and build something that as a result is going to it's going to at a minimum work in, in the worst-case possible scenario. And just as a bit of a side note, when the Laptops and in Schools Initiative happened seven, eight years ago, mm. you know, the, the federal government gave these schools money for laptops, but no money for any of the infrastructural right. requirements so that... The Wi-Fi, which you'd need lots of it in every classroom, you know, that often wasn't covered. So you would go into these classrooms and they would have the machines that they bought seven years ago and Wi-Fi that wasn't even good seven years ago, right? Exactly right. And I think the challenge has been as well is the last seven years. I mean, it's I think you mentioned it's the 10-year anniversary of YouTube. You know, we're talking about the YouTube generation. Video is becoming increasingly a powerful tool for education. In most of these places, YouTube has been blocked because the network connection for these schools would simply overload with the the students actually getting YouTube content that would be helping the teachers. That's right. (laughs) Pardon me, because I get very excited (laughs) about this too. You're right. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that was for us the the big wake-up call was just the technology that was there. Um, and the, the definite, the challenges with the experience that teachers were having with it. And when you see that, it's then no wonder that a teacher, you know, when they're presented with a new bit of technology. It's going to be as broken as everything else they have. That's, that's right. They like, think. it's, see you later. I'm not interested. Okay. Exactly All right. So right. how did you work your way around that? Then, I mean, that sounds like that would be, I think most people would see that and just go, okay, this is too hard. 
Look, it's it's been good because I think the the first way that we've been working around is not so much us working around it, but a nice confluence of trends and, and sort of changes that are happening in education right now, which right. makes it a timing, the right time. In okay. a sense. So, the digital education revolution came through, as you said, every mm-hmm. kid got a laptop. That had a lot of inherent problems, but what it did was it really stretched the system, and it made you know every single school in Australia think about, well, how do we actually, how do we use a device? How do we integrate technology in a classroom? So, it shifted almost like, you know, ripping the band-aid off. It shifted the mindset and, the you know, the framework that schools were operating on, okay. which helped. That was the first step. That now is ended, which has meant that now schools are forced, and have sort of been forced to, as a result, move to a bring-your-own-device program where the kids bring their own devices. And that's the trend that, that, that helps us because... That's where you're then getting much better quality devices into a school, which helps from, so, from that perspective. But it, but it's interesting because that also though tends to favour richer kids and richer schools, right? It does definitely. And then you've got equity issues, right. Which can, can can you know can occur. I think what's interesting though is that the cost of tablets and smartphones has just fallen, you know, through the floor. So just to give give you an example, and I've been doing this one. I've been working with educators every June, July. I'll go out and buy what I call the craptastic tablet. Yep. And the tablet that I bought, it'll now be two years ago. Oh my God, it's horrible, right? <laughs> the one that I bought last year, eh, not so bad. Still a little slow, but not so bad. And these, the first one cost me $79. The second one cost me $59. Yeah. So in another couple of months, I'll go out and buy again the $59, $79 tablet. It will be yeah. probably not bad. So you're right about that. I mean, that's, there's some equity around it if you're designing for that. Yeah, that's right. And I think that was the, the second part of what we then have consciously done to deal with these right. challenges. And first and foremost, we went, we need to build something that's going to work beautifully on tablets and smartphones. Mm-hmm. Because of the equity issue, it means that there's going to be more likelihood that, you know, people that are, you know, maybe struggling in low socioeconomic areas can afford these. Not just in Australia. We've been building the product, yes, in Australia, but was always with a global mindset. Right. And being aware of just the, you know, the rapid growth of smartphones and tablets in Asia and the fact that yeah. that's really how people are connecting with the internet and connecting with learning. We needed to start there. Yeah. And that was our focus. And so, we built for tablet and smartphone in mind and had a really big focus of working on the user experience. Uh, you know, my co-founder, his background was in product design and user experience. So, that was a really, really powerful, um, a powerful way for us to just build something that, that teachers look at and go, oh my God, this is beautiful. Like, I know how to use this. I don't need two days of training to use right. this tool. I can pick it up in a couple of minutes. And that's been for us the big journey. You know, we have this, um, this goal, and it actually came from something that um, Facebook do. You know, they have this idea of an aha moment where mm-hmm. they, they try to get you know their users to an aha moment as quickly as possible, mm. and that framed a lot of the way that we approached it. And we sort of said we need to be able to get a teacher to, to use our product and be able to use it successfully in under five minutes. If we can't do it in under five, we're in trouble. You're listening to this week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome our new sponsor, Omni Radio. Omni Radio lets you create your own personal radio station. You can listen to popular podcasts like this one and create radio shows mixed with music or with your own playlists from Spotify or radio or your phone. Omni Radio also lets you get your local news and weather updates. You can download Omni Radio free on the App Store and on Google Play. 
Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia. We're talking to Rowan Kunz, the co-founder of My Ed App. Okay, Rowan, so you've now got this beautiful smartphone, tablet, BYOD thing going. Mm-hmm. You've got the teachers going, yeah, okay, I can use this. But that's not a sale at that point. That's a go-ahead. Now you're dealing with schools mm-hmm. and school departments and departments of education and you're talking about sales cycles that tend to kill all of the companies except for the great big software companies that can just throw sales people at that so how do you then cross that bridge Mm -hmm. look it's certainly an interesting challenge and it's one that we've been working very hard at trying to solve Mm -hmm. i mean we've been a couple of, I guess, trends and changes have occurred recently, which is I think the big one has been increasing automation or not increasing automation, autonomy, I should say. That's the right word. Um, where the central departments right. and the, the DETs, the Department of Education, is giving much more autonomy to individual schools and to principals to make purchasing decisions. Okay. So, in some sense, you know, that's a double-edged sword because it means that, you know, you're not necessarily having the same capacity to go top down on a school system right. and sell, you know, to your Department of Education and have a rollout. How many employees do you have? Uh, so we've now got, including myself, a team of five. Okay. So if Victoria suddenly said, hey, let's do this, you would actually not be able to because you weren't staffed up to be able to handle however thousand schools there are in Victoria. So in some ways, actually being able to go a school at a time for you as a startup with five people is not a bad thing, right? Well, that's exactly right. I think right now, having the capacity to go direct to school right. is actually the best thing for you know new companies looking to enter the space right? because it means exactly right. You can work closely with schools, build a product, and you've got a pathway to get into a school. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not locked out of the market because the only way to get it in is to go right. through the central authority. And- Which is how it was not very many years ago. That's right. Exactly it. So, I think that's been a really powerful thing for us to be able to see because it's meant that we've been able to you know have conversations with schools and, and speak directly to the purchaser and the decision maker. Mm-hmm. And see a sales cycle shrink. In saying that, there is still certainly, you know, if you're looking at an enterprise sale to a whole school, mm. depending on the school, there is still a sales cycle. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, typically that's going to be across the course of a year. Right. You know, you build a relationship and then come, you know, term three, when budgets are being refined and defined, that's, you know, your point where you go for the push. Do you... Do you- Go get an inside champion, a teacher who's really going to be a voice for this. Yes, look, the model that we've been been using and it's been working for us, and we're now looking to scale it up, is a, a mixed model of um, entering with a, a teacher, and right. so a teacher license. So individual teachers can use the product, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for a yearly license mm-hmm. fee and use it in their school. And exactly that, what they tend to become very quickly is the champion, you know, the the advocate in the school. It's the case study, right? And then what we see is that there's then you know this growth and momentum in a school where that. That's shared with other teachers, and then at a certain point, you get a tipping point in that you know in that year where you're then having the conversation with the leadership team at the school to say, let's take this from you know a pocket, a bright spot across mm-hmm. ten teachers, and let's scale it out across your fifty or sixty staff. And you could see that that is exactly what's going to happen across a district, and also then probably across a state. That if you get enough schools in, then it becomes something that's a reality for an entire state, and presumably that's on your plan somewhere. That's right, definitely. So, how many schools are you in now? So, at the moment, we're in 20 schools. 
That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. 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 And when I say 20, that's, you know, where we've got like a, a good footprint. We're working with a good solid amount of teachers, right. um, you know, across the whole school. But yeah. for five of you, I mean, is the, are you dealing with a lot of tech support or where is a lot of this go? Or is it, are you just answering questions? Are you doing product development in five people, 20 schools? Mm. You know, this is the kind of thing where I listen to that and I go, how does that business scale? Yeah, definitely. So one of the, one of the things that we've spent, you know, really the second half of last year working on and, and particularly as well the beginnings of term one of, of this year was right. building up our support infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things that we've been able to do quite effectively is um, get really good at building within the platform um, guided tutorials and support so that it- So, dog fooding. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, right. So Modeling if- the behavior that we want right. to see. And that has had a huge impact for us in, you know, just reducing um, our role in training and onboarding. You know, the product needs to speak for itself. It needs to be easy to use. Yes. If you can't use the product to teach people, then you can't use the product to That's teach right. people. <laughs> so, right. we've gone, let's use our own product. Right. To teach people, and that that has meant that yeah, it's been actually a really powerful way for us to have a much lower touch point right. with schools. Um, so it means that you know right now we're comfortably supporting twenty schools. Um, you know, very very with five people with five people. That's right. So that's why we're now at the stage um, where you know that was we were laying the groundwork and the infrastructure while we were completing some product development mm-hmm. to make sure product was, you know, really humming along right. and we're now moving into a stage for us where we're really looking to accelerate our growth now that we feel like we've got product market fit with what All we're right, doing. So, how do you accelerate your growth now? So, that's where we've shifted around um, opening up the product now for publicly for individual teachers to come on board. Um, you know, at the, up until this point, it was much more, yes, an individual teacher could use the product, but it was much more of a, a hands-on approach. Right. We've now built the infrastructure to enable any teacher who, you know, wants to start creating activities, sharing with their class and getting data on where their kids are at and being able to start that next step of, of individualizing for their students to be able to, to jump straight on and do it straight away. But then one of the things that we've then been working on particularly is, is enabling um, essentially collaboration between teachers. And that was the really big part of the workflow so aspect. So, inside of a school or between schools or? Both. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's right. So, at the moment, it's within schools and we're now working towards opening it beyond that. Mm-hmm. And for and that's been the big thing that teachers have been really hungering for because every teacher at the moment is reinventing the wheel. They're going in, they're spending all this yes. brilliant time creating a, an activity and there's another teacher around the corner that's probably done it better. Yeah. So, or, or at least done it. And, you know, if everyone's using the same national curriculum, there's going to be the same sort of dot points that need to get covered yeah you know you can do what you do well and someone does what they do well and if they're complementary yeah right, that's, works out. that's exactly right so one of the things that we've we've been working towards is um, providing it so teachers can jump on board use the product for free right but if they're providing the what they're creating into a shared global community for mm-hmm. the creative commons mm-hmm. then they've got you know a, a period of use that they can continue to use it for free mm-hmm. and in doing so what we're hoping to do is create value that you know the more people in the network the more teachers in Virtuous the community cycle. Yeah. that's right the, the greater the value is so we're playing with a number of little growth hacks around that at the moment mm-hmm. as a way to drive um, drive you know growth in terms of user acquisition and we found that that's already been the key thing that was working for us manually you know so we were doing that manually getting that working you know 
you start there and then when that starts working, you move to automate and that's now the sort of process that we're moving towards. All right. So as you grow, so from five people to however many you're going mm. to need, because if you grow from, say, 20 schools to, say, 200 schools, let's say there's an order of magnitude growth mm -hmm. over the next calendar year, which would be very good, right? That's right. Definitely. Uh, or do you have 50 people at that point? Do you still have five people? Yeah, yeah. Do, do you know if do you know if this scales linearly and mm -hmm. how how do you pay for that? How are you going to capitalize mm -hmm. that kind of growth? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's some of the questions that have been certainly top of my mind as we're moving into this stage. I think the the, the first thing is that we've been preparing around, yeah, how do we scale the team and, and to what extent do we need to scale the team? And one of the things that we've been working quite creatively around is going, how do we keep the team small? Because at the end of the day, the, the biggest challenge, I think, in education is the fact that it can be quite a hands-on business. And as you start scaling up schools, that's the exact risk. You're like looking at huge sale teams, huge yeah. support staff. Yeah. And so for us, it's been a way of going, let's let's build the you know the app and the platform itself to be that good at training so right. that we're going to minimize our need for support. There'll always be that. Right. Um, and then from a sales side, one of the things that been, we've been working on is building a community of ambassadors. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at that as a strategy to be able to tap into- So, it'd be sort of an affiliate thing? That, yeah, that's right. So, tap into, tap into people that have worked in the education you know system for a long time they could be ex-principals yeah. um you know that have, have retired and are now looking to, to to get involved and to come back and to start thinking about things so we're looking at that as a model we're still early days in that mm -hmm. as a way to, to, to sort of look at scaling how do we support the stage of you know becoming an individual teacher and then moving and, and tipping over to that enterprise right um, because that's then where if you've got the relationship and you've got someone on the ground you know that's really what can make that that school an incredible success story. All right. So, is there? I mean, what's the plan? Is there an exit here? Is there someone who's likely to buy you? Because it sounds like this is the kind of you. It sounds to me like you're an excellent SaaS acquisition candidate right now for someone who already maybe has a big place like a Microsoft who owns Blackboard. Or do you see mm. yourself just growing enough that you eventually go public? Or what's the mm. vision for where the business is going? Yeah, look, good question. I think the whole team, and you know, I'm speaking for the whole team, we're all very, very passionate about education. Mm -hmm. We've all said to ourselves, we see ourselves, you know, this is this is a five to ten year right. project. This is, you know, in which you're in year two ish now. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so we've still, you know, the way that we view it, we've still got a good solid yeah. time on the board left to really make it work. Because I guess the thing that we're very passionate about is, you know, we want to see, we want to see this product being used by, you know, millions of teachers around the world. Yeah, but that. If the product's being yeah. used by millions of teachers around the world, right. you have another problem. It's a problem you want to have, but it's it's another problem. That's right. Yeah. So look, for us, you know, the moment we're all very committed to making it work and to to staying in it for the long haul. As the journey goes, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Rowan Kunz, thank you very much for coming on this week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and when we're recording This Week in Startups Australia, both Felix and I take a lot of behind-the-scene photos. We post those to our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You can also find SoundCloud and other 
media associated with the site. You can find links to the companies that we talk about, to our very fine sponsors. It's all there. It gives you a real sense of everything that goes into the show. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'm here today with Melbourne Matt Allen. Say hello, Matt. Hello, Mark. <laughs> and we're here this afternoon talking to Kurt Falkenstein from the General Standards Company. Lovely to be here, Mark and Matt. Hello. So, mate, um, you're a lawyer. Oh, my God. Have we let a lawyer on the show? We did. Jeez. But um, we really want to know how you got into the startup space. I was serving a writ on you, if you remember correctly. Oh. <laughs> Don't talk about that, man. Um, no, I um, uh, I ran a family company in Brisbane for a couple of years doing uh, document storage. We had an archive warehouse with uh, about 300,000 archive boxes. We ran a couple of million um, file items. We scanned a lot of uh, paper. Um, it was an incredibly expensive business to grow. So um, Because we, it was all human-based, it was all very sort of... No, we had two major cost inputs, property and steel. The prices of those two things go up. Our, our software was inexpensive. It was fantastic. Um, and so I posited that to continue to grow the company, we should go digital. Um, my father, his eminent wisdom, said he's, that's not like a great idea, but he didn't want to run a software company. And so I said, I'll go to Melbourne and start a software company and we'll buy you out pretty soon. <laughs> How'd that go? Well, I'm a lawyer, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so I moved to Melbourne. I, I started doing a bunch of document management ventures. Um, we ran like a um, helping people, mostly large companies, um, integrate their large paper-based holdings and their growing um, electronic holdings. Um, through that, I met. I got involved in Silicon Beach here in Melbourne. Right at the beginning, I was one of the initial four or five people who turn up every every week on a Wednesday in Fitzroy and get a little bit tipsy and talk about technology. Um, and from that, I guess I realized I began working with a lot of startups, helping them um, on the financial and legal side. And it, I guess I got to a point in my life where I was doing more of that than selling software. Um, and I'm probably better at selling startup legals than I am at selling software. So in the end, as they say, follow the money. Fair enough. And, uh, and go where you want it, right? That's always been my strategy. And if people are asking for your expertise, mm. for God's sake, give it to them. Yeah, I, I found that whilst I really enjoyed the business model of information management, uh, it's a very compelling business model. We get long-term customers, very, very, uh, you create very valuable businesses. Um, I was no way near as passionate about that as what I am about helping people get into business. Okay, so... Now that we've got you here, we're going to get some free advice. It's there. It, it's, we don't charge enough for it really to not be free. So. <laughs> um, what do startups have to worry about when they're starting up legally? What do they tend to overlook legally? What are the things that you're constantly fixing? Sure. Um, so when we started our business general standards, um, we, we got into it with the intention of competing with apathy. So the, <laughs> rather than competing with other lawyers, so what we tried to achieve was um, a, an environment where startups can access lawyers and get their foundations built very, very well at a price that's affordable. Because despite all best intentions, most startups and most small business, people who want to start a small business, um, are constrained by cash and spending ten or $20,000 to build a legal foundation. To, to do it right. That's right. So um, the the... The thing that we find that startups don't do right is they don't do the foundations. So things like having the correct business structure, you know, um, 
normally that's a company. I mean, for the listeners of this show, um, you're going to use companies, you're going to scale a business, you're going to use a company. So PTY Limited. That's exactly right. So a lot of people often will go and get advice, say, from their from their parents' accountant who will suggest setting up into trust and they'll have two units on issue. They won't have prepared the foundation to scale. And scale not, and when I'm talking about scaling, scaling the company, so having multiple shareholders, multiple rounds of company, um, multiple rounds of capital, um, being set up for financing, expecting this company to have its, its foundation foundations poured over by other lawyers, accountants, and investors. So the foundational stuff is what is what misses, but then a lot of people do do it well. Um, I think the what actually is missing is um, what's hard for startup founders to do is to realize what they're doing before they incorporate. You know, so we see a lot of problems pre-incorporation. Um, how do they split the IP? People are working on a project together. Someone leaves. Who owns what? Um, reconciling that stuff is is quite difficult. I mean, I've seen that pop up even in hackathon weekends, right? You get a startup weekend and they come up with a great idea. And at the end of the weekend, who owns what? If some of the people want to take it forward and some of the people don't, how does that work? And I mean, these are the kinds of problems that people must come to you with. Absolutely. So um, we were a partner with um, Founder Institute this year. We sponsor startup weekends and um, we work with Startup Bus and... Uh, through these type of things, we, we've, you know, basically this is a major issue, this pre-incorporation issue. In Australia, essentially, you work as a partnership. Um, partnership, you end up being in whether you mean to or not. Um, so there's joint ownership of IP. So it's something that we're working on is to create basically a standardized pre-incorporation arrangement for use in hackathons and you know, so when people are bringing ideas here, they're getting off the ground mm-hmm. to sort of accommodate this type of stuff so that if someone does work walk early, um, it's very clear what happens, which should be basically they get nothing. Well, I mean, but that's always, but I think that's exactly why the lawyers end up getting called in because that person may think, actually, no, I contributed a lot, but I... I don't want to leave my day job because actually I need to pay the mortgage or whatever it is. I can't take the risk. And it's 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 an area that people are going to want to fight over, particularly if it's seen that there's some money that's going to come out of it. Right? Absolutely. And that's why we think the um, the, the answer with what we're trying to do, the problem with traditional legal advice for startups is that you can go either way. You know what I mean? Like I, I've been uh, hung out the drive by a few girlfriends for saying this. But, like, I can argue anything. <laughs> As a good lawyer should be able to. Exactly. So um, it's about finding what is the um, solutions that give most of the people the correct outcome most of the time. The things that need to get fought over will get fought over. The problem with, with the startup environment is all this stuff doesn't need to be fought over. But because there's a, if there's a lack of structure, there's a lack of documentation, then the fights occur. Um, and because there's no way to resolve it, where there's a grey area, I mean, people just aren't going to call in lawyers to battle it out, spending five hundred dollars an hour. You'd hope. Unfortunately, yeah. that, does that does happen, happen and I have personal experience of this. Yeah. So, so we try to in all. So with startups, it's, sim- it's very simple. Um, you know, making sure that you've got your agreements with people documented. Um, make provisions for the breakup. Um, that's really important. Um, with equity, certainly it should be tied to you know a, a, not just amount of time working in the business, but performance conditions. You know, making you know, a good tip is the way we write it is that you agree to make yourself available to the company for a certain number of hours a, you know, a week, a month. Because sometimes in a startup there is nothing to do. Right. That that can happen, particularly if you're on the business side in a, in a tech startup. Sometimes you're just waiting on a product. 
Um, so simple things like, you know, creating performance conditions, making it, and trying to find the simple way, you know, generally we found that, and this has been great working with in really intelligent tech, you know, um, developers who write their code elegantly, look for elegance, ele- the elegant mechanics in legals. And so that's forced us to find these elegant solutions around these things like taking back equity. What happens if you want to split ways? What happens if you want to go ahead and raise more capital? How do you get decisions made? So I think that type of input is really important because there's a, um, those people naturally look for elegant solutions. So I, I suppose one of the things you're, fi- you're starting to see, particularly now there's a lot of, and we've, we covered this in our, our news episode, our news and reviews episode, that there's a lot of what they call family, friends, and fools funding level going on now. Lots. I mean, lots. And you must be seeing a lot of startups coming to you and going, okay, how do we produce the agreements here? Yeah. And the people who are signing those agreements, the family, the friends, and the fools, they don't actually know what to look for in these agreements, right? Absolutely. And this is a, and so, um, uh, I believe Matt Allen might have coined this term, but not family, friends, and fools, but people like us round. <laughs> Which is a little bit nicer because... Um, Are you going to own that, Matt? I'll, yeah, I'll take that one. Yeah, I think Matt can own that because uh, the reality is that um, we actually see more people like us than, than family and friends. Right. It tends to be one or two people um, who have some connections and people who understand the space. Um, the, required, the required amount of funding tends to be between fifty and 250000 So when, when General Standards talks to entrepreneurs at this stage, um, we put it on them very clearly that it's their responsibility to take a complete fundable startup to their investors. Because if they take a carte blanche to their investors, what happens is that investor goes and seeks advice and they have someone who comes back acting purely in the investor's best interest, right? So we find that there's been an acceptance in startup circles of almost draconian legal terms in favor of early stage investors. When in the long in the long term of the company, these will be the smallest providers of capital. And not just that, but they may be hamstringing the organization so that it can't go and get uh, a real angel round or a series A because of these provisions. Oh, I'm going to upset a few people, but um, every single uh, incubator program and accelerator, accelerator program that we've worked with and have had the um, pleasure of reviewing their documents. Um, I can hear the scarecrows around the word pleasure there. Provide, um, um, give the early stage investor shareholder um, these incredible veto rights over the company, right? Because that's what the lawyers have told them to do. Um, now, every single one of those organizations exercises that veto, you know, in a benevolent manner. You know, like they're, they're not there hanging it over, over the, but that doesn't apply when you've got um, private investors who aren't sophisticated and they are unhappy that a build is three months late, right? Then they may start to, to, to wrangle things. Um, so the problem is that the standard of documentation comes from documentation being produced for professional, these professional organizations. Rational actors. That's right. So, so we, um, so instead we, 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 in early stage investing, we encourage entrepreneurs to make it as simple as possible and to draw as many parallels as they can from the public markets. Go and look at how we look at how a public company is run. What gives people the confidence and clarity to, clarity to invest in those? How are those companies run? Now, let's mimic that as much as possible at an early stage level because those conversations then, simple things, share price, clean number, five cents, clean number of shares on issue, clean round valuation, that type of stuff gives people confidence. 
um, people like us don't understand pre-money, post-money, fully diluted. Those words don't make sense. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I wanted to tell you about eCal. eCal is the first right-time communications platform. It synchronizes rich events content. That's anything from sporting events to concerts to business appointments. It does that directly into any popular personal calendar, whether it's on mobile or desktop or social, for engagement at the right time in the right place. The eCal Dynamic Calendar Marketing System is proven to deliver a higher value marketing return than more traditional digital communications. It works to increase awareness, acquire data, and drive high value sales and engagement. You can sign up for a free eCal account at eCal, that's E-C-A-L dot com. And we're back. This is Mark Pesci with Matt Allen. Hello. On This Week in Startups Australia, talking to Kurt Falkenstein. So, I've managed to get my people like us round, (laughs) and now I'm going to need to go out and get some angel to really take things to the next level. And you've done a lot of that kind of funding work. So as a startup, what am I looking for for the kind of legal things that I'm going to need in place to do that well? Absolutely. So once again, this all comes back down to foundations. If you set a company up well and you set it up to expect to receive multiple rounds of capital, you have that mechanism in place, right? So we're having companies now. So and I'll, I'll go through some of the mechanics, but... Um, to put it in, in context, we're having companies now doing their second and third rounds of capital between $500,000 and $1 million, and they're spending less than $1,000 on our services, on legal services, because all the stuff's already there. They've got the mechanics. They know how to make a board resolution to authorize their shares. They've got term sheets. They adjust the financial terms. Their shareholder agreement doesn't change. They've got a separate class of shares for their investors, um, and they know how to go out and pitch their business. Um, and then it's simply a subscription. Then we just handle basically the subscription, formalizing the investment and doing the share issue and the asset call, all the awful stuff that they don't want to do. Right. Um, so, so basically, once again, it comes down to preparation. So in, in our business, um, you know, we, we do several hundred startups a year. Um, about a quarter to a third of those go through financing. Um, we've never been involved in an unsuccessful financing when we've done it like this. So here's our secret. Um, you should put your, in, the first thing to do is to put your investors, no matter how small, into a class of investor shares. The reason being is that you know you can basically write a set of rules specifically for investors, right? Now you want those rules to apply to investors forever. Okay. You know, basically until the company goes through or very substantial capital raising round. Right, or liquidity Or event. liquidity event. That's going to change. Everyone's going to convert back to right. ordinary shares at that point in right. order to complete the transaction. Um, so if you give, if you create a sensible set of investor shares, the preference share, normally that will contain a simple anti-dilution protection, a simple liquidation preference, which means that if you sell the company for lower than the valuation, they get their money back out first. If you sell above the valuation, they participate on their percentage. And give the investors some right to nominate a board member at the right time. 
So it might be once amount of capital's gone in, once a certain amount of time has passed, a certain milestone's gone, number of shares been sold. Um, now, now the investors have got some sensible protections. If you want to go and issue half the half the company to your, you know, to your mother, um, it's only going to affect the, the the founders. It's not going to affect the investors. Right. So getting that done means that investors now have got a level of safety that's easy to understand. Then it's setting up the company, all right, for long-term management. Too often a shareholder agreement is considered, oh, we'll do it on this round of capital, and the next time an investor comes in, we'll tear up the document. That means you're putting all your company's legal structure into the hands of someone who's got, um, only has to look after their, their, their interests. Right. So. A director of a company, their legal obligation is like what I have as a, as a lawyer, a general standards. I owe my clients a duty to act in their best interests at all time. A director of a company has to give that same duty of best interest to the company and its shareholders. A shareholder has got no duty to anyone but itself. Right. So Self-interest. That's right. So on that basis, um, it is it makes a lot more sense for the company to be set up to be run by its directors. All right with clear mechanisms for the board, for the shareholders to replace directors if things don't go right or things need to change. But in the event that everything's going well, um, there's no reason why, you know, particularly investors shareholders should have too much sway in, you know, further issuances of capital if they're positive. You know, if you want to go out and raise more money, you want to make an acquisition, you want to do kind of stuff and it's positive for the company, it doesn't stand to reason why a shareholder should be able to have a self-interested position and protect it mm. to the detriment of everybody else. So, the, so, so you know, on that, once you get your investor shares, have the company set up so, so that it's run so by the board. Is, this is a really interesting thing because I've seen this is that small shareholders who come in at the beginning don't want to have dilution events. Don't, in other words, don't want more shares issued so that people can pay more money than they paid for shares. And I've never quite understood this. It's a, it's a naive understanding of how these things are achieved. So, for example, if you say, I'm concerned that the directors will go and issue a bunch of shares to their friends and family and dilute me. Right. That's a fair concern. Yes. You've got every reason to have that concern. The solution, though, is not um, saying you need my permission to issue shares. The solution is if you issue shares below the value I invest at, then I don't get diluted and you give me some extra shares to keep my proportional interest. That just means if people want to be idiots, that's going to dilute them. The more idiotic they are, the less control they have, the more chance the shareholders then have of removing them. Right. Um, so once it's about having that that you know having that stuff settled, if you've got a good, fair shareholder agreement, right, and you can show that the the founders are aligned to the growth of the company and that there's some performance conditions, the investors have got sensible protections. Then the only thing that you need to negotiate with your investors is valuation. They got to believe in the company, then they're going to have a debate around that. Now, when you debate- It's how much you believe in the company, not do you believe in it. Exactly. So then it becomes a debate around valuation, which means it's a debate around share price. So that's why for us, we like to have the share price low because people feel bad about trying to take someone down from five cents to four cents. (laughs) (laughs) So typically what we'll find is investors who will debate less on the valuation and then more say, well, I will put in 25,000, not 50. Now that can be very good because, and then, and so once you're that, then the, the other secret to it is to do what we call a rolling close. So to have your documentation set up. So if someone turns up today and says, I want to buy $100,000 of shares, okay, you get that paper signed. 
you take that money because yeah. that may be the last hundred thousand dollars that anyone ever offers you. Yes. So waiting to fill the whole round with a million dollars, unless think, unless you're a hot startup, that's right. right? So In which be, case your valuation is going up all during the offering round. So that's right. So so being able to to come now typically this is what causes people to believe that um, equity for equity financing costs a lot of money legally. Because they, you have this great big process where you got to get everyone finally, and you're doing this multiple negotiations, get everything settled, and then you do a great big close with all the investors. We found that if you get the first person across the line, they are now saying, "Well, I put my money in at this level of risk. Why on earth can you come in, you know, a week later and get a better deal? It's just not on offer." Now, in early stage, so early stage financing, people like us, angel investing, this stuff is impressive when you look professional. Right. Now, if you're going through an investment round later on, if you've got a venture capital firm, right, then they're going to have they, they might have their own mandates, yeah. all right. And at that level of capital, you've probably got investing in quality advice to make sure that you don't get outgunned in the negotiation is really important. But as the as the startup in the early stage, you actually should have the negotiating power. If you don't, chances are you shouldn't be going and asking for money. <laughs> all right, one final question. Because you sit in the middle of so much angel deal flow yeah. in Australia, just do you want to give us some comments, some overview comments about what it's like here to range, raise angel capital? Yeah. Um, so Australians are wonderful gamblers and bad at it <laughs> and tolerant of that. So there's a, a cultural appetite for early stage investing. Um and that's why for us, we encourage you know founders um, to really liken it to the stock market as much as to use that same vernacular so people understand it. Um, in the last three years, the, the sophistication of um, participants knows it has greatly increased. So it's gone from family and friends to people like us. So we're finding successful business people um, who have you know who have now got disposed that they've already bought their house they might be looking for investment properties they have a share portfolio they have disposable investment cash and they're seeing this as a genuine asset class um, the, the the increase of people with with self-managed superannuation in their 30s and 40s um, these people have the appetite for it because 10 or twenty thousand dollars allocation there is some question about, and this is just a whole thing about whether self-managed super actually should be placed into a very risky asset class. That's the thing. It's, it's, it's an interesting point, and people are doing it, and it, there may be some pushback around that in in years to come. Um, like all, if you've got, a, if you're running a portfolio, it should be balanced, right? So if you've got a hundred thousand dollars in superannuation, you shouldn't put fifty grand in early stage startups, right? <laughs> Uh, and I'm just looking. There's two people in the room who have done that. <laughs> At least, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I put like three. 150% of my startup. Three. Yeah. All right. My superannuation. Great. So, um, thank you very much for joining us on this week in Startups Australia. Thank you. You know, I learned something today. Rowan Kunz taught me that you can't just walk into a market with a solution. You have to listen to the market. You have to learn from the market if you want to make an impact. But when you do, the market will show its love. Now, on a very happy note, last week, James Chin Moody's venture, Sendel, the startup he found within his startup, that 
firm got $1.8 million in investment. It's going to help the business grow into a major player in Australian package delivery. And you can find out more about that investment by following the link on our Tumblr. Big thanks to sponsors Omni Radio and Ecal. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's always a joy to listen to. Thanks to Rowan Kunz and Kurt Falkenstein for coming onto our show. And a big shout out to Matt Allen, our Melbourne location producer. We'll be back in a fortnight with a special episode about diversity in tech. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.